There is one regret all old people seem to have in common, but it's not what you'd expect. In today's show, best-selling New York Times author Dan Pink explains what regret is and why winning a bronze medal feels better than winning a silver medal. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, you are listening to Nudge and I'm your host, Phil Agnew. Today, I'm very lucky to have Dan Pink join me on the show. Dan is the best-selling author of books like When, Drive, To Sell Is Human and The Power of Regret. Now, this episode is the second half of my conversation with Dan on regret. So if you haven't listened to the first half, please go back and make sure you listen to the previous episode of Nudge. You don't have to listen to it before you listen to this, but it's worth listening to both. So perhaps listen to this one first and then go and listen to the last one. Now, do these words sound familiar? No, nothing at all. No, I regret nothing at all. Do you recognise these words? Maybe not, but you'll probably recognise the song they are from. It's an inspiring song. It whips up emotion. And that's exactly what happened when Edith Piaf sang the two-minute, 19-second version on French television. It became so popular that when she performed it a month later, she received 22 curtain calls. By the following year, fans had purchased more than one million copies, elevating her from a popular French singer to a genuine icon. Three years later, Piaf had died. Dan Pink shares his story at the start of his book, The Power of Regret. He goes on to suggest something interesting. Edith Piaf, she was lying. Sure, she claimed to have no regrets, but looking back on her 47-year life, it's clear she experienced several moments of tragedy and trauma. She bore a child at 18 who she abandoned to the care of others and who eventually died at the age of three. She spent one portion of her life addicted to alcohol and another portion addicted to morphine. She had a disastrous marriage, a dead lover, and a second husband deep in debt. As Dan puts it, it's hard to imagine her on her deathbed celebrating all of her decisions and claiming no regrets. It's especially hard when you consider the science. Studies, including Dan's own work, suggest that 99% of us experience regret. Those that don't tend to be mentally ill or below the age of five. What's more, regret is a major part of our lives. Swedes regret 30% of their decisions. Regret is normal, and that's okay. Edith Piaf's song lyrics might be inspiring, but they're not good advice. It's arguably better to accept regret, because we all experience it, and it can be a good thing. But do we all experience the same regret? Or does our regret differ? 
That's what Dan has spent the last few years attempting to figure out, and his results are fascinating. In the American Regret Project, the quantitative survey, the big public opinion survey, I, I, I established a very large sample so I could look for demographic differences in what people regret, how they regret, frequency of regret, and whatnot. So do men have qualitatively different regrets than women? Um, do people with higher degrees of formal education have different regrets than people with less formal education? And, and so I, I really looked hard for demographic differences. And there were way fewer than I expected. I mean, I was not finding correlations with all these things that I thought would be predictive. Introversion and extroversion, zero correlation about anything with regret on introversion and extroversion. Belief in God. I was saying, okay, there's got to be some, like, people who believe in God have to have different kinds of regrets or different propensity for regret than people who don't believe in God. No difference. All these things I was looking for, I didn't find many demographic differences, except one. And it was very revealing. It had to do with age. When we look at our regrets, when we look at the underlying architecture of regret, we can draw a distinction between regrets of inaction and regrets of action. Regrets of what I didn't do and regrets of what I did do. Edith Piaf almost certainly had regrets, but she probably didn't regret taking action. She probably didn't regret divorcing her husband. She probably didn't regret quitting drinking. Instead, she probably regretted inaction, like not visiting her child or staying with her second husband for so long. We regret inaction more than action. And interestingly, this regret for inaction only seems to increase as we get older. When you break down the regrets by age, what you see is people in their 20s have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. But people in their 30s have more inaction regrets than action regrets. People in their 40s have way more inaction regrets than action regrets. People in their 50s, 60s, 70s, it's not even close. It's two to one, often three to one ratio of inaction regrets versus action regrets. And I think that tells us something. Now, let's try to understand what's going on here. Again, I can, for your audience, I'm willing to get into the weeds just a tiny little bit. Why is that the case? Why is it that people have more inaction regrets than action regrets as they get older? I don't think we know for sure, but I think we can make some plausible guesses here. One of them is that um, certain kinds of action regrets you can address, you can undo, you can do something about, you can mitigate. So I have people who were bullies, regret being bullies, who will go back to the people they bullied and apologize. If you have cheated somebody, you can make them whole. Uh, if you go get a tattoo and you regret getting the tattoo, you can have the tattoo removed. So certain kinds of action regrets we can address, we can undo. What's more, we can take the psychological sting out of some action regrets by looking for the silver lining in them. So again, in the World Regret Survey, I have a lot of people, I think it's, I mean, it's got to be like 99% women who say, oh, my big regret is that I married that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. So they find a benefit. They find a silver lining in it. You can't undo an inaction regret. It's metaphysically impossible. You can't find a silver lining in it. It's hard to find a silver lining in it. And so 
these inaction regrets stick with us for a very long time. Now, what is what lesson does that yield? I think, Phil, the lesson is that we should have in our lives at least a slight bias for action. I don't think that we should take every risk, but I think that the evidence is that we should have at least a slight bias for action. That a lot of times when we resist acting, we are buying emotional insurance that we don't need. We regret inaction over action. And this is the case with all types of regrets, especially social regrets, which we regret the most. A 2012 study by Mike Morrison and co. concluded that regrets about social relationships are felt more deeply than any other type of regret because they threaten our sense of belonging. When our connections to others disintegrate, we suffer. And when it's our own fault, we suffer even more. The need to belong, as the researchers wrote, is not just a fundamental human motive, but a fundamental concept of regret. And these social regrets, they're almost always due to lack of action rather than the result of an action. We regret not calling our old school friends. We rarely regret actually calling them. Here's Dan to explain. Example, in the connection regrets, the big barrier to that regret, and connection regrets are almost all inaction regrets. If only I'd reached out. I didn't say anything. I didn't tell my, uh, I didn't tell my brother that I loved him. I didn't reach out to this old friend. Inaction regrets. And I didn't do that because I, I was going to feel awkward and they weren't going to care. And what the evidence tells us is that when people actually do it, it's, sing- it's monstrously less awkward than they think. And the other side always cares. So their, their, so their analysis is wrong. A lot of times when we, um, when, when people end up reflecting on, say, not asking somebody out on a date 25 years ago, they say, well, I don't know what I was so concerned about. The worst thing that ha- could happen is that that person would say no. Uh, and so I think that in general, not in all cases, but I think the lesson is that we should have a slight bias for action, for doing stuff, for trying stuff for taking sensible risks, for reaching out, for, you know, for, for doing stuff that I, I that, that, that being um, inert is not the path to a life well lived. What's more, in, in many ways, we have an analytic problem in how we make decisions, that a lot of us believe that if we're going to make an important decision, what we need to do is we need to figure it out, and then act that figuring stuff out, is the prelude to acting. When in fact, in many cases, acting is a form of figuring out. That the only way to figure it out is to take that first step and act. That that that, that figuring out isn't a prelude to acting. That acting is a form of figuring out. And so I, I really do think that a lesson here is that you know, nearly all of us need to, you know, if we have a if we have a dial to notch up at least a bit, are our willingness to act. That's interesting, right? We're often so adverse towards acting because we don't exactly know how to do it. We don't want to reach out to that old friend because we don't know what we'd say. We don't want to start that new business because, well, we don't know where to start. We don't book an appointment with the dentist because we don't know the number. But as Dan says, taking action doesn't require you to know all the information. It is just part of the process of gathering information. 
So if you're feeling particularly apathetic because you don't know all the answers, don't let that stop you from taking action. Taking action is part of the learning process. Here's another weird thing about regret. Studies show that we stay consistent with our initial thoughts and justifications, even if they're irrational. Let me give you an example to explain. Say you don't know what to say to your old friend or how to start a business. It's hard for you to change that view because of something called the first instinct fallacy. In 2005, Justin Kruger, Derek Wirtz and Dale Miller examined the answers on more than 1,500 psychology exams taken by students at the University of Illinois. What they found was that students who switched answers in the test were more likely to switch to the right answer. Switching your answer led to more right answers. So you've answered something and then you come back to it later and you think, hmm, now I'm going to switch this to a different answer. In other words, your first instinct, your gut instinct, isn't always right. In fact, studies suggest that on average, it's probably more likely to be wrong. But what's interesting is that the students didn't predict this. The same students that switched and got better results didn't predict that switching would help them. When the researchers asked the students which they would anticipate regretting more, switching when I should have stuck or sticking when I should have switched, they found that 74% of students anticipated more regret from switching answers. 26% said it wouldn't matter, and exactly none of the students anticipated more regret from sticking with their initial answer. This is due to the first instinct fallacy. We feel like our initial decision, our gut instinct, is always right. We regret switching, even though it gives us a higher chance of getting the right answer. Now, what's the takeaway here? Well, I guess it's get comfortable ignoring your gut instinct and start taking actions on the things you may have thought were too hard. Now in a bit, Dan will explain how regret can keep you going to the gym, how to get over regret faster, and why winning an Olympic bronze medal feels better than winning an Olympic silver. But first, here's a quick 60-second ad. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Regrets can keep us going to the gym, at least according to one well-regarded British study by Charles Abraham of the University of Sussex and Pashal Sheeran of the University of Sheffield. They showed participants this simple statement. If I did not exercise at least six times in the next two weeks, then I would feel regret. 
When students had been shown this statement, they ended up exercising significantly more than the people for whom regret was not on their minds, the people who did not see that statement. Simply prompting the thought of regret encouraged action. That's that's pretty interesting, right? But but what about those of us who are who are sort of wallowing in regret and can't get over it? What can we do? Are there tactics we can use to get over regret? I asked Dan. We don't want to ignore our regrets. That is a path to delusion. But we don't want to, as you said, we don't want to wallow in them. That is a path to despair. What we want to do is confront them, listen to them, use them as signals. The trouble is that no one ever teaches us how to do it. But we, we know. I mean, science gives us those clues. So the way I look at it, to, to try to keep it as simple as possible, is a three-step process that we can think of as inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward, the first step is how we look at the regret and ourselves, how we frame the regret and ourselves. Uh, many times when we talk to ourselves, everybody engages in self-talk. When we talk to ourselves, especially in the face of mistakes and screw-ups, we are brutal. The, 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 the way we talk to ourselves is cruel. We would never, almost none of us would ever talk to anybody else the way we talk to ourselves. Don't do that. There's no evidence that it works. There's no evidence that lacerating self-criticism is effective. Uh, there's, um, what you want to do is treat yourself not with not by like pumping up your self-esteem and not by ripping yourself to shreds, but with something called self-compassion. There's 20 years of research on this thing about self-compassion and this, this practice of self-compassion. And what it tells us is that we should treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. We shouldn't treat ourselves better than anybody else. But there's no evidence that treating ourselves worse than anybody else is effective. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your missteps, your regrets are part of the human condition. Any of your listeners who has a regret, they were to email it to me. It would take me about 90 seconds to find the exact same regret somewhere in the database. Whether that that person with the same regret is in Malaysia or in Manchester or in Santiago, Chile, It almost sounds too simple, right? Just don't be so harsh on yourself. But this age-old wisdom has some scientific backing. The psychologist Sonia Lugo-Mersky of the University of California has conducted studies that suggest people should process negative and positive experiences in different ways. In her research, she found that writing about negative experiences, like regret, and even talking to a tape recorder about regret in a positive light for 15 minutes a day substantially increased the people's overall life satisfaction and improved their physical and mental well-being. Just writing about your regret and talking about your regret in a positive way improves your well-being. So merely thinking about regret, that's not enough. That didn't improve physical and mental well-being. Only those who took the time to write their regrets down or talk about them found the process effective. The interesting thing, though, is that the opposite was true for positive experiences. Writing and talking about the triumphs and good times, those positive experiences, that actually drained some of the positivity. That made people less positive and and, and didn't improve or actually negatively impacted well-being. Now this really makes you think. We spend so much of our time highlighting the positive aspects of our lives, whether that's on social media or whether that's just chatting with our friends. And we spend a lot of our time hiding our negative aspects, not talking about them. 
But if we do that, we'll only end up draining those positive experiences and end up wallowing in the negative ones. But Dan's got more advice. Here's another suggestion about getting over regret. I think the other thing which we often don't appreciate enough is that emotions, both positive and negative emotions, pleasant emotions and unpleasant emotions, are by their nature abstract. They're amorphous. They're, they're blobby. They're, they're hazy. They're vaporous. That's what makes positive emotions feel good. It's what makes negative emotions feel bad. And so when you talk about your regret, or there's evidence that simply writing about your regret 15 minutes a day for three days, writing about your regret converts that blobby abstraction into concrete words, and those concrete words are less menacing. That you can, in some ways, kind of, I mean, choose your metaphor. You sort you transmute them from abstract to concrete, or you essentially defang them by making, by turning them, by, by converting them into words. And so that is the outward. So this, unburdening yourself, but even if you want to do it privately, simply converting the abstraction to concrete is important in feeling better and making sense. Now, these two steps are, are essential. Treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Uh, disclose to unburden yourself and convert the abstract emotion into concrete words. But the third part is also really important, which is forward. You have to draw a lesson from it. You have to be explicit about finding a lesson in that regret. And we tend to be terrible at solving our own problems. This is it's something that psychologists sometimes call Solomon's paradox, where King Solomon was like this wise man who was able to adjudicate disputes and give people wise counsel in their life. But he screwed up his own life because he was terrible about making decisions in his own life. And so and, and what happens is, is that we, we tend to be pretty good at solving other people's problems and pretty bad at solving our own problems. So one thing that you can do when you go outward is something called self-distancing, where you take a step back and you, um, you think of your problem from a distance. So you talk to yourself in the second person instead of saying, you know, what should I do? You say, what should you do or what should Phil do? You ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do in this situation? Um, if you're in business, you say, what would my successor do in this situation? Um, uh, what are even things like, what does the me of 10 years from now want me to do? And so when we do this thing inward, reframe it, treat ourselves with, with kindness rather than contempt. Outward, disclose, convert it to language to make sense of it. And then forward, take a step back and draw a lesson from it and plan for the future. It's a powerfully effective emotion. And the process is actually relatively simple. Once people do it one or two times, it becomes kind of natural and habitual. The thing is that no one ever teaches us how to do it. So so, so some of us just put our fingers in our ears and go blah, 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 no regrets. And others of it become completely captured and debilitated by the regret. And what we should be doing is something in the middle. Make it concrete. Write it down, put yourself in someone else's shoes, or even better, ask someone else for advice on regrets and actually listen. That last one didn't surprise me. See, in Dan's book, he shares a fascinating study on what makes people happy. And spoiler alert, good friendships are seriously important. Now, the longest running examination of the lifetime well-being of a single group of people is the study of adult development conducted by Harvard Medical School. It's also known as the Grant Study. 
You might have heard of it. In 1938, researchers at Harvard University recruited 268 undergraduate men, and they followed them for the next 80 years. This study is well known because the level of detail they go into is astonishing. The researchers measured the men's IQ, they analysed their handwriting, they examined their brows and their testicles, they drew blood, took blood pressure, and calculated their lifetime earnings. The researchers wanted to learn why some people flourished in work and life and why others floundered. Now, there are some obvious limitations with this study. All of the participants were American men, but that did change over time. The researchers eventually included the offspring and spouses of the men in the study. And then in the 1970s, they added 456 working class participants to diversify the, the social economic pool. The combined conclusions of all of the experiments are far more robust and very specific. They concluded that to live a happy life, you need close relationships. As the Harvard Gazette summarised it in 2017, close relationships, more than money, more than fame, are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties, those friendships, they protect people from, from life's discontents. They help to delay the mental and physical decline and they are better predictors of long and happy lives than stuff like social class, IQ or even genes. That finding proved true across the board, across both Harvard men and the the working class participants as well. They also found that men who had had warm childhood relationships with their parents earned more as adults than men whose parents' child bonds were, were a bit more strained, and those that were happier were also less likely to suffer dementia in old age. Oh, and people with strong marriages suffered less physical pain and emotional distress over the course of their life. Now, there are plenty of reasons why good relationships equal happiness, but one of the obvious ones is that these people had friends who they could share their regrets with, and in doing so, they could get over regret and live a more positive life. That's the point Dan makes in his book, and I think it holds up well. Without friends, you you sort of wallow in regret, and you lose perspective, and you become even more miserable. It's really useful advice, and and I find this stuff eye-opening, and hopefully you do too. But that is not all today. Before Dan left, I asked him about one more memorable study from his book. This study looked at Olympic winners, and it concluded that winning bronze, well, that felt better than winning silver. I asked Dan why. Well, I mean, it has to do with our brain's ability for counterfactual thinking. You know, we are able to, again, our our brains are pretty amazing. Like, we can imagine situations that run counter to the, the actual facts of what happened. And there are two kinds of counterfactual, two kinds of counterfactuals that we can do. Something called a downward counterfactual. Downward counterfactual is at least, all right, you imagine how things could have been worse. Um, and an upward counterfactual is an if only. You imagine how things could have been better. At least make us feel better. If onlys make us feel worse, but they can help us do better in the long run. And so, What's happening is that if you line up those people on the metal platform, and there's there's 30 years of research now on this, if you line up people on those Olympic metal platforms and you have uh, participants who simply evaluate their facial expressions, how happy they are, what you see is that the happiest people by far are the gold medalists. Makes perfect sense. They just want a gold medal. But the second happiest people are the bronze medalists, not the silver medalists. Why? Because the bronze medalists are doing a downward counterfactual they're saying oh, i got a bronze medal 
but at least I didn't finish in fourth like that schmo and lost a medal altogether. The silver medalist is doing an upward counterfactual. And if only, ah, uh, if only I had a reach for the wall in the final meter of this race, I would have had a gold medal. Uh, if only I had kicked a little harder, I'd have passed him, uh, you know, before the finish line. And so, um, and so it's, it's paradoxical in a way that, um, silver medalists typically are less happy than bronze medalists. You win silver and you can't help but think, oh, if only I'd got gold. You win bronze and you think, oh, thank God I didn't win nothing. It's classic anchoring in action. The way you perceive an event changes based on the anchor you've set. After hearing this, I decided to look up who I thought would be the most regretful athlete, the person who won the most bronze and silver medals without ever getting a gold. Franziska van Almsick was a fantastic German swimmer. She started competing aged just 14. She was named Female Swimmer of the Year in 1993. And she was the world record holder for the women's 200 meter freestyle for 13 years between 1994 and 2007. But despite all of this, she never won a gold, winning four Olympic silvers and six bronzes over her career. <laughs> That's tough. That would, if you're ever you're feeling regretful, think, well, you know, I've never come that close to winning a gold and never quite getting it. Now, before we finish, I wanted to share one final Dan Pink example on regret. It is a thought experiment, and I love it because it shows, firstly, how much regret dictates our decision, but also how hilariously irrational we can be. So here's the thought experiment. After leaving the electronics store, you buy a $1 ticket for tomorrow's $80 million Powerball lottery. As it happens, Dan Pink has also bought a Powerball ticket. He decides to make you a deal. He'll trade you his ticket for $3. So you'll get his ticket, he'll get yours, and you'll get $3, making a pretty decent ROI on your $1 investment. Would you accept this deal? Now, of course, you should. You'll get a three times return on your investment. The chances of you getting any higher than that are 5,000 to 1. It's a no-brainer. But in laboratory experiments, the majority of people, they resist these offers. We make irrational decisions because we fear regret. We fear regretting giving away that winning ticket. And so we act irrationally. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode, then I've got something special for you. After this recording, Dan and I switched tracks and started to chat about persuasion. He shared some mind-bending tips on influence. And I shouldn't be surprised, he hosts the most popular masterclass on persuasion and has written a book all about motivation. On the show, he tells me how to make a sales pitch more effective, how to become a better salesperson, and the best tactic for getting a raise. It is a cracker. But... I'm not releasing it for a few months. I've got a load of other shows I need to publish first. However, if you want, you can get access right away. In fact, you can get access right after listening to this. All you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter using the link in the show notes. Simply subscribe using that link and I'll send you a link to the show straight away. You can always unsubscribe if you like, but you'll still get early access to that show. If you've already subscribed to my newsletter and you can still subscribe using that link, don't worry, you won't get subscribed twice. You'll just get access to the show. 
or if you are already subscribed, just reply to the last newsletter and ask for access to the episode and I'll respond with the link. As always, please do follow the podcast wherever you listen and please do give it a review. And also do check out Dan's book, The Power of Regret. It is incredible. And surely I don't have to tell you that after two great episodes on it. But there's a link to buy the book if you want to get more detail and you can find that link in the show notes. Anyway, that is all, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge.